All right, really looking forward to this next discussion. We've talked a lot about China this week and over the course of several weeks here on the show. And when it comes to discussing China and what really goes on there and what the lay of the land is and what's going on in reality, there's there's one guest that I want to reach out to every time, and that's Gordon Holden. He is a professor at um, and a, the director emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. He worked for several years for the Canadian Foreign Service in China. He studied in China um, he is the voice on China, in my mind, and I'm delighted that he could join us this morning. Um, Professor Holden, thank you so much for your time once again. Always delight. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Okay, uh, we've got a lot to get to here. First of all, sure. um, I don't think... Let's just talk with the two verdicts that have happened this week, with uh, Schellenberg's death sentence being upheld and Spavor getting 11 years today. Not a surprise to anybody, right? I think this was fully expected, and this is what we thought would play out. It wasn't a surprise, and in fact... Even the timing was not a surprise. It was pretty transparently linked to the Meng Wanzhou court case, uh, the woman that's been detained in, 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 Van- in Vancouver, although she's actually in, in under more or less house arrest. The timing uh, as well wasn't a surprise. And the, the outcome, uh, perhaps there's a little bit of a question how long uh, Michael Spavor would get, but uh, uh, that, they, that he's been sentenced and that the um, death penalty is confirmed from Mr. Schellenberg this was predictable. Uh, there was no possibility of a different outcome as long as Meng Wanzhou is, is still in Canada. What The question I have is, what does China think the end game here is? I mean, I think Canada's been pretty clear and pretty steadfast in the fact that we can't just throw Meng Wanzhou back to you. We're, we're, we're a country of laws, and we're going to abide by those laws. China doesn't seem to care, though. They just continue with this tactics that they're playing. I think they, they may care a bit, but not nearly as much as they care about getting Meng Wanzhou back. In other words, it, I mean, if all things are equal, there's some tiny thing. Yes, they like to be popular, they like to be liked. But when it comes to someone really important, one of the elite of China, uh, connected to the most successful uh, Chinese company abroad, yeah. Huawei, that's what they really care about. That's their bottom line. The rest of it is, um, is really secondary. So when we see, you know, um, Mark Garneau and Justin Trudeau come out with their statements this, or- this morning saying that this is completely unjust and blah, China doesn't care, right? I mean, they've said that before and it's had absolutely no impact. They don't care that much. The one thing I took from Mr. Garneau's statement, which I think is interesting, is when he says that, that discussions are undergoing and are intense. Now, if those discussions are just Canada, the United States, Canada trying to get the United States to help us, yeah. that's one thing. That's been going on for, for over two years. If... The discussions are between Washington and Beijing and are intense. That gives me more hope because at the end of the day, again, the China really doesn't care about our court system. They don't care that much about this, uh, if at all, about Kovac and Spavor. They really want Meng Wanzhou back. And that's the, the hook. And the Americans are the ones who have the clout, perhaps, to get that done. I hope that's underway and I hope that succeeds. So you've advised government officials for decades on dealings with China. What would you be telling them at this point? Get her to the U.S. fast and tell the U.S. to deal with her and get her back? I mean, what, what is the possible, what can Canadian officials do? They keep saying we're going to work, you know, tirelessly until we can, you know, get their, their release. Well, how do you do that? What would you be doing? Well, unfortunately, I think the, the obvious things have been tried and haven't succeeded. We don't have the leverage. We don't have the lever to push the Chinese to do it. The one card we have that matters uh, is uh, an American ally, uh, which is sympathetic to our position. The 
Chinese do care about the United States. They, they do not want a, a Cold War. They want stability. They want trade. Uh, they want an improved relationship with the United States for their own interests, for their own interests. And if this is one of the impediments, they may well be willing to deal. I don't think given it's almost an advantage in a way they don't care about COVID and spavos. It's not like these two people they really want to hang on to. Yeah. They're just punishing us. So if they really cared about them, it might be tougher. But at some point, there's going to be a deal made, I hope, sooner I hope than later, that uh, deals with her case but frees our two Canadians and our Albertan spavos. So the situation, as you said, this all is happening just as the Mung case is in court in Vancouver and the extradition hearing is underway. Now, we don't know what's going to happen with COVID. My my take on that is that's a carrot that's being dangled and his outcome will depend solely on what happens with the Mung case. Do I have that right? Would you agree? I think that's very likely. Of course, it's a black box, the Chinese top party official. You can't no, with certainty, but to me, that is a reasonable assumption. They could have done a twofer and done them both at once, uh, but they want, of course, they also want to demonstrate the two different courts, one in Dandong, one in Beijing. Uh, they're not linked, uh, but they are ready for sure to deal with COVID, and the sentence will be probably set by what happens in Vancouver. Uh, I'm sure there's a blank on the sentence until they see what happens in Vancouver, and then they'll fill in that blank. So, what, again, it'll be a party official who determines what will be his sentence, not the judge. You know, Gordon, you're making a point that I think we need to understand as Canadians. Um, It's entirely dictated by the Chinese government. They will determine what happens here. I mean, this whole legal thing is is a farce. Um, You're saying it's it's completely dictated by the government. Anytime there's a political dimension, and that's for spades true here, that's the case. Now, there's thousands of cases every day, and China's 20% of the world's population. If you're there for drunk driving... Uh, for for theft or uh, or a um, uh, minor incident, the courts will just grind on. I don't think the party will pay much attention at all. But as soon as there's a political dimension, the decision shifts into the party structure and will be made there, irrespective of what the court irrespective is thinks, irrespective of what the evidence is. And that's the unfortunate case with R2. And the case of Schellenberg, I have no idea about his guilt or innocence, but the sentencing again uh, was up from yeah. 15 years to death penalty right after the arrest of, of Wong. So again, there's no doubt that was a party official phoning someone and saying, um, whoops, there's change here, appeal denied, death penalty. So that's the problem. Any political dimension, any pretense of rule of law goes out the window. Uh, a lot of people are wondering, you know, in terms of safety of Canadians, and we're talking about the Beijing Olympics and things like that, if they're showing that they have absolutely no respect for any international norms or laws or anything like that, if you're a Canadian in China right now and this Hmong thing goes the wrong way, are you at risk? That's an impossible question to answer with certainty. Right now in Hong Kong, we've got 300,000 Canadians and maybe another 50,000 living and working in, in, on the mainland. So there's a lot of potential folks there. The one thing that gives me a little bit of hope, I don't think this has worked out quite the way they thought. I honestly believe that the party officials thought, we'll roll up the the two Michaels and they'll spring Hmong. I mean, they they have trouble understanding that we actually do have rule of law, that it's not just that the prime minister or the premier can't just phone up the judge and get it fixed. So what hasn't happened, fortunately, I don't want to give me ideas, what we haven't seen in two and a half years is them detain more people. That tells me they may dimly be aware now that this isn't working for them. And given we've got so many Canadians there at all times, I would say this, though. 
if you're going to China, be scrupulous. Let's not give them any excuses. Um, if I were able to go to China, which I can't now, um, I would go. But I'm not saying that people should not be concerned, particularly if this is, is repeated in some fashion. You don't want to be the third Michael. Exactly. Yeah, no doubt. Um, question, as somebody who's, I mean, you basically have experience with this going back to the mid-70s. So I'm wondering, it seems to me like it's it's escalating and it's hastening and things are happening quicker and quicker. And we're hearing more and more stories about the influence that China is exerting. I know they play a long game in China, but do I have that right? Are things, are they becoming more brazen, more aggressive and more immune to any sort of diplomatic pressure from anywhere around the world. You look at Australia, I mean, there was 25 diplomats there this morning from other countries around the world, and it's like, well, who cares? We're going to do what we're going to do. Yeah. Well, I think there's two points. One is, I think under President Xi Jinping, uh, who's been in power since 2013, there has been an escalation in the use of Chinese power. But I think it's more than that. I think the big difference is that China had a strategy under Deng Xiaoping, hide your strength, bide your time. Well, their time's arrived now. Uh, they will not be pushed around by anybody. That includes the United States, but certainly not by smaller countries. And they're less and less afraid to flex their muscles. And I don't think that's finished yet. I think that their net strength is increasing. I mean, it's possible for you to imagine a world where Chinese economy could be double the size of the U.S. economy in another 20 or 30 years. So I think we're in for a very interesting ride, tough ride, with rising Chinese power greater willingness on the part of China to exercise that power. So, I've often said here, you know, we have to understand where we fit in terms of, you know, the global stage, and Canada is a bit player. Um, but like you say, the United States is involved, Australia. Do we, is there an appetite to get these Western democracies? Because that, like you say, China isn't going to deal, they don't even care about the U.S. at this point. Isn't it going to take much of the world united in defense? I mean, it seems to me we're at a perilous time when it comes to China's influence. Is this something that's ringing alarm bells in the halls of power around the world? I think it's ringing alarm bells in the, in the halls of the Western allies. The reality is, and this is something that may surprise many, China is more popular in the third world, most of the third world, the exception of India and a couple others, than is the United States. But for Western Europe, for many European countries, certainly Australia, New Zealand, Canada, U.S., uh, there's deep concern about the rise of China and the effect it's having on global institutions and the prospects for this century. Uh, but it's not universal. And at this point, though, China does not want war. They don't want a cold war. They are one saving grace, perhaps, is they live by trade. Mm-hmm. They're the number one trading partner for most of the world. Uh, they want that stability. But at the same time, they want to call a lot of the shots. The way they think that America's done since World War II, they want to be America's counterpart of equal influence, equal importance, and that creates a lot of tensions. It does, and uh, unfortunately, Canada is sort of stuck between the two giants right now when it comes to the two Michaels and all the rest of this stuff, and uh, pretty much helpless. Well, there's there's things we can do, but there's not things we can do that bring them quickly. We've seen that. They've been working for almost two years, getting diplomats to round up coalitions of countries that support us, the only one, I think, that has the clout to make the needle move is the United States. Europe's not united. Um, I mean, really, Australia, New Zealand, and even Great Britain, China, uh, doesn't even blink. The U.S. matters to them still. They're still their military superior. 
They're powerful, still more powerful in many ways than is, is China. They sit up and listen. So we've had American diplomats, Canadian diplomats, apart from the ones already posted that we can't send high-level representatives to Beijing right now. It's all frozen. Mm. America's still sending senior people. Uh, there's someone there in Tianjin last week. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken was in Japan uh, talking about China with, with their regional allies and meeting with his Chinese counterpart. So there are, there are ways. Americans keep telling us they're raising their cases. I think they are. But they've got a lot of, of bones to pick with China, not just the two Michaels. So I think it's a bit of an illusion to think that's all they talk about. They have their many, many issues. South China Sea, trade issues, you name it. Um, Michaels are one of them, just one of them. Yeah, that they'll get to if they have time. Okay. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. You bet. Uh, That is Gordon Holden, who is the Director Emeritus of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta. Uh, As I said, he's been working in China with the Canadian Foreign Service since 1976. He is the one who speaks to politicians uh, involved on the China file about... uh, you know, the background and the history. He's, he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to China. So I'm delighted that we could get his insight.